Hello listeners, it is Tim here this week. Cody will be doing an overview of Ruth, and I will be doing an overview of Rahab. Story found in Joshua chapter 2. You ever feel lost reading God's Word? Too much ground to cover? Do you lack confidence when reading? Are you just unsure about God's plan for us? Join Tim and Cody as they map out God's Word and try to understand some of the difficult passages so many believers today skip over or simply ignore. You're listening to the Unchartered Scriptures. All right, let's jump into the story of Rahab. Rahab is found in Joshua chapter 2. We are going to break down the story into sections or scenes. In the Old Testament, a good way of breaking down narratives and trying to understand them is by breaking them down into scenes in the way that it's written. So each story can be separated into its natural parts based off of how the story is written. So let's jump in. So the first scene that we'll come to is Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly into Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. This is a strategic move. They, um, so a little background. Joshua has taken the mantle of being the leader of the nation of Israel. Moses has passed away, and so has the first generation of people who uh, escaped Israel. Escaped, not Israel, escaped Egypt. So, the nation of Israel left Egypt, they sinned against God, they were not able to enter into the land promised by God to Moses. And so, after Moses and the people, the first generation of Israelites passed away, Joshua took up the mantle, and the Lord has commanded him to be strong and courageous and, and, to, and to enter into the land promised to him. Strong and courageous is a big theme that God said it to Joshua multiple times. And so, first move that Joshua is making is a very strategic one. It is go sending in two spies to spy out the land. Moses did this once before, and two spies came back with good news, and the rest of them said, no, 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 we're not going to enter the land. So this is the second try. Joshua sends two spies out, and they go to Jericho. Jericho is the first city that kind of stands in the way of them entering the land. It is a very wicked city full of sin. And so the two spies, they enter the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they stayed there. The king of Jericho figured out, which I think is interesting, the fact that the king figured this out. Um, since Rahab is a prostitute, there's probably a lot of people that know her and a lot of people that go in and out of her house. And so, presumably someone probably saw the spies there and let the king know. Another thing that this lets us know, too, is that the king was nervous. He was scared. He did not want those spies there. He had heard, he probably heard that they were from Israel and they probably heard about God. We will figure out if that is the case later on in the passage. But the fact that the king cared about these two men, just two, is interesting. 
And the king of Jericho said, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Simple enough. So, Rahab does something kind of unexpected here. She says, um, well, it says that she had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. This is a clever lie. Because not only she's saying, yes, she's telling the truth partly. She's saying, yes, the men came here. But the lie starts where she says, obviously, they left. This is very clever because they are leaving the city and the city does close the gate at night. And so when the men leave, they're closing the gate. And so it'd be harder and they'll know when the men come back into the city if they return to look again. And so this is a very clever move she had made. So she encourages the men. They left. They went to go try to find them. It turns out she hid them on the roof underneath stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. This is the first scene. So, what can we take away from the first scene so far? Rahab lied. She's a prostitute. And um, Joshua sent two spies secretly in to spy out the land to see where they can... um, move an entire nation of people. That's important because it is very difficult to find in that area a place where you can have an entire city. You need to find a place that has animals, a place where you can grow food, a place where there is water. And so they also need to figure out, is Jericho a city that they can take and destroy? I want, first off, first things first, prostitute, Rahab, was not a, I guess, profession that was looked upon very well back in the days. It was not looked upon very well now. Um, Even when serial killers murder sex workers, generally the case isn't as, um, it isn't at the highest priority level as, let's say, someone like a banker, if a banker was murdered or a school teacher was murdered, that would be a priority over a sex worker being murdered. That's partly because that line of profession, there's risk to it already. And they're not really viewed as, they're viewed as lesser people, which the Bible does not take the same stance. A lot of people think the Bible is outdated and that it's sexist towards women and that it's not and it, it's Christianity is just for people who are rich and white, and that's just not the case at all. The Bible actually condemns rich people a lot, and the Bible really values um, the poor, the widowed, the people lowest of low of society. We're about to figure that out later in the story, but it is interesting that the Bible repeatedly calls Rahab a prostitute. If they're trying to make Rahab seem like a hero, calling her a prostitute is not the way to do it. They were not valued, again, very well back then. They were tolerated as a necessity for men to have somewhere to go to, you know, 
have their pleasure. And so, Rahab does something strong and courageous in this scene by risking her life, by the way, too. Another interesting thing is that since the king of Jericho sent his men, if Rahab were to get in the way, being a prostitute, the king would have no problem just killing her. And um, I'm sure Rahab knows this. If by her lying, she's putting her life at risk. And we will see why in a second. So, first scene's over. Moving on to the second to the second scene of this incredible story. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. That is a very interesting part, and that is why Rahab is risking her life. She, in her view, sees that if she her life is pretty much at the mercy of God right now, if she doesn't do something to try to save these men and hopefully earn good favor with God, then she's dead. She's a dead either way. And so she took a major, very strong, very courageous risk. Not knowing whether or not she would earn favor with God, she did it anyways. I know that the Lord has given you the land and the fear of you has fallen upon us. All the lambs of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also deal kindly with my father's house. It gives me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, brothers and sister, basically your entire family. This is a very, very good part. And so this scene actually connects to two passages in the New Testament, James and Hebrews. I believe the specific passages is Hebrews eleven twenty nine. And James two twenty five. So in the Hebrews it passes actually it's Hebrews correction Hebrews eleven thirty one. In the Hebrews passage is saying it was through faith that um, Rahab was considered righteous because of she um, believed God and dealt kindly with. I'll read the actual exact quote. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish for those who were disobedient because she had given friendly welcome to those thrice. By faith, Rahab was saved. She did not. She was saved from the destruction of Jericho because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. That is interesting. By faith, she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What does that mean? By faith, she did an action. Um... All we see it right here. The reason why she did it is because she heard about the Lord. She said, For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. She saw the works that he did. Everyone was afraid of him, but she took it a step further and said, God is a God. God is the God, the only God above heavens 
and beyond the earth. In James, so that's the first, that's her faith coming out. In James, and this may seem like a contradiction, but it is not. In James 2, 25, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now that is interesting. So, was she saved by faith? Or was she saved by her works? Was the reason why she was saved by the from the destruction of Jericho, was it because of her works or was it because of what she did? It was because of her faith, because she believed God was God. Well, it's both. First, it's her faith. She would never have done what she did if it wasn't for her belief that God was the God of heaven and earth. Because it shows in Jericho here that everyone knows Everyone is afraid of God. Everyone's heart is melted. The Jericho, the city of Jericho, the people of Jericho, their hearts have melted. But only Rahab, and assuming, and presumably her family as well, believe God and are willing to make an action and do something about it. The king, he is afraid. He doesn't believe God is God. And if he does, he's afraid to do anything about it. And what he does is try to capture the spies and kill them. Presumably kill them. It's a safe assumption to make. And so what Rahab's does, her faith and action. So obviously the king was afraid, but he took that belief and his action um, was to destroy. It was to kill the spies and to go against God. But hers was to be with God and to treat the, the spies kindly. It was an act of, or pretty much an act of um, worship worshipful obedience and so it is both because if the king believed and then did what Rahab did he presumably would be saved too but he didn't so this is a great the story in this what she did here is actually a great example of salvation in the new testament so in the new testament um a lot of people say okay or jesus christ died on the cross to save us so but Jesus also says that you have to be perfect, like my Father is perfect, and we're into the kingdom of heaven. Is it faith or works? Which one do we do? Yes, Christians are supposed to be moral people, but I thought it was by faith, so can I just sin and do what I want? It's a weird balance, and a lot of people are confused by this. But the story of Rahab, I think, clarifies that issue quite a bit, and it's kind of an allegory and a metaphor. So is um, the other stories that this story connects to. It's kind of an allegory for salvation. Ruth and June and Tamar both have a lot of gospel salvation messages in them. And so what Rahab is doing um, is she is believing first in God and then being saved from destruction. We will get into, once I hit on, once the story, once you get through the story and go to the application, the application is about um, this very message. So we'll take that on pause, and we'll come back to it. So, and the men said to her, our life for yours, okay. And so then they have conditions, they're laying down, okay, so, that you will save alive my father, mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, there is a condition to this agreement, 
You did not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So there is a condition to, so basically, she had faith. They said, okay, we will take you in. The condition is you have to do this stuff. So when she is saved by her faith and works, there is conditions to that. And if she's truly believes that God is God, she's obviously going to do that. And this is another mirror of the Christian life. So you believe God, you believe that destruction is coming, that there is something to be saved from, you devote your life to God. The condition is that you listen to God, do His will, and enter into a relationship with Him. And the way to be in a relationship with someone is to talk with them and for them to talk to you back. God talks to us through the Bible, and we talk to Him through prayer. Now, if you want to be a Christian and be part of that relationship, then you have to, there is a condition to it. But the condition isn't, you're not saved by doing those things. You are saved by your belief in God, and because you believe in God, you are going to do those things. The faith always comes first, but. Faith apart from works is, faith without works is dead. Because if she had the faith and didn't do what she said, she would be dead. This is a great, again, it's a fantastic analogy for the Christian walk, for the Christian life. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall, and she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. And so another clever thing about Rahab sending the spies out the way she did is that she said, All right, now she knows where the pursuers are looking for them. She sends them out another way the, and to wait out them looking for the spies. The men sent to her, we'll be gutless with respect, so, okay. And so, go into the hills, and the pursuers will counter you, and then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we'll be gutless with respect to this oath of yours that you made to us. Swear, behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord into the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brother and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. So if you don't listen to the words you're saying, then you will die. Makes sense. If you jump in front of a moving car, you will die. There's nothing wrong with that commandment. It's just it's common sense. It's good advice. Um, it is not a burdensome. Another great thing that you notice here is that what they are telling her to do, the condition of being a part of, I guess if you're using it as an analogy, being a part of, to be a Christian, it's not burdensome commands. It's to enter into a loving relationship with God. And if anyone goes out of the door of your house industry, his blood shall be on his own head, and she'll be good. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. So these are the conditions of this agreement. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath. Then he made a swear, and she said, According to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. She tied the scarlet cord in the window. 
They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days. And the pursuers returned to the pursuers' church. So that's the end of the second scene. It is the agreements of the conditions of Rahab's salvation. If she does what they say, stay in the house, tie the scarlet cord, they will be saved. They will be taken care of by God. There is faith there. They also have reassurance saying, okay, you have to have faith to obey this command, but also, if anything happens to you in the house, your blood will be on our hands. So, they departed, went into the hills, remained there three days. They got back, and then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over, came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told them all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. The last scene, they bring back the story, and basically the moral the lesson, the big theme of the story is that God has provided for the people of Israel and the land is theirs. The people have washed away. Some people have turned and are serving the Lord now. And because of them, Jericho is going to be easy to take because with, when the, your enemy is already demoralized before... Um, you come, then it's probably means you have a good advantage in the fight. Also, the whole encounter with Rahab and them protecting them and them saying, that's a whole, I mean, it's kind of a miracle. And there's a sign of the scarlet cord that gives them hope and um, hope and courage and strength in order to carry out this task. And so... Fall Jericho happens, and then Rahab is safe. But Rahab, the prostitute and father, and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive. That is seen in chapter 6. So they are saved. We don't know how many people that is, but a good majority of it. So what's the whole point? What's the application we can get from this story? Well, first off, I would like to mention, too, that this Rahab is also mentioned in Matthew. Again, we've said it before. She's mentioned with... Um, four other men, women in the genealogy of Matthew. She's mentioned with Bathsheba, Ruth, and Tamar. And all these women, well, I'm not, not sure about Bathsheba, but the ones that are mentioned by name, um, Rahab, mentioned explicitly by name, Bathsheba is mentioned, but explicitly by name, would be Ruth, Rahab, and Tamar. And they, all three of those women are foreigners, and two of them are prostitutes. Well, one was dressed up like a prostitute um, and committed sexual um, immorality. They were saved. And so what that shows to us about the Bible and about God, because if we go back to 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, training righteousness, etc. And so we learn stuff about God, about us, we also learn stuff about how to live our lives positive, what we should do, and things we shouldn't do. And so what we do learn about this, about God, is that he He loves and favors, I mean, he loves everyone, but he really loves those who are persecuted, the least of society, the ones who who are who need him. He desires people who 
actually need God because those who pretend that they don't need God are living delusion and no matter what God does in their lives, they're not going to see it and they're not going to turn to him. And God wants to care for those who are hurting, those who are in need. He loves those and he has a great amount of empathy for people who see that they are in need. Like Rahab. And that turned to him. And so, that's the first lesson we get from this. The second lesson would be um, that when we see... So, there's a big shiny moment, and we see a contrast between the king and from Rahab. The king's heart melted away, and he sent out two men to kill them. When faced with God and the truth of the gospel, and the truth of the Bible, if you do see God as real, either people will reject the Bible and say, no, I don't believe this, and they will be very aggressive towards Christianity, or... um. Or they'll be indifferent towards Christianity or be like, oh, it's fine, but it's not for me. And then there's the people who do hear by faith and act accordingly to it. And that's what Rahab does. And that is what this passage is according us to. When we hear of God, whether we want our, it's good for our hearts to melt away and to be scared. But then to turn to God and act and commit our lives to following God's will found in the Word of God in these ancient texts. The king, however, heard his heart melted away and he rejected God regardless. And that is not that is not an ideal scenario. And so, that's great and all. You may be saying, okay, fine, yes, but my life is fine, it's great, there's nothing that really bothers me, and um, there's nothing that really is wrong with my life. Yeah, that might be true, but however, we all are in this situation. Again, I love this story because it is such a great analogy for salvation and for the gospel, because the city of Jericho was about to be destroyed, and death was going to happen to them. So, but yeah, but we're not in a city, and it's not about to be destroyed, whatever. But, if God doesn't exist, their life has no meaning. Because a lot of atheists have said this, that ones who are honest at least, they're saying, if no, since there is no God, life has no meaning, there's no purpose, there's everything that is, is made up, created by us, there's no right or wrong, there's no purpose. Any purpose that you feel like you do have is an illusion. And a lot of people ignore this. One day you'll die. Everyone's going to die. That is something that you just have to come to grips with. But there is hope. If I think there's a lot of good reasons to believe in God. If you do believe in God, there is purpose. And you shouldn't believe in God because it sounds like the better case of the scenario. I mean, because if you believe in God because it's the better scenario, but it ends up not being true, then... That's even a worst case scenario because you are living your life like God is real, potentially risking your life for God. And if you die believing that you have hope beyond death and there isn't anything, then you just wasted your entire life and you should be pitied more than anyone else. And the Bible says that. So, the Bible, I think there is a lot of reasons. Anthony Flew, who wrote a book called There is a God, 
he has a great, I think, one of the better, best arguments I've ever heard defending the existence of God. He doesn't believe in God and Christianity, but if you read the book, if it, it honestly seems like he believes in Christianity. He says that's the most likely one of them all, but he still doesn't fully believe in it. That's beside the point. Tim Keller also has a lot of great defenses for Christianity, um, specifically, and N.T. Wright also had, wrote a very good defense of Christianity in the Antony Flew book as well. Um, so if you are doubting, go to those sources and look and find it, because you have to really come to terms, all right, am I going to live a life that has no meaning, or am I going to see if the Bible's legit, and look, and find, I think it is. But you have to come to terms with it. Either, yes, you're going to die and you should be afraid, or you can find hope in Christ and act on that. The whole point is not just living your life delusional, thinking that you can find a purpose. It's coming to terms with that and then seeking God and responding either way with either your heart melting or your heart melting into the arms of God. So it's, I mean, shake out of that delusion, shake out of that and pursue what I think is the hope of the gospel. I mean, the gospel, Jesus died on the cross so that we can be saved from a meaningless life that, at the end of a life full of pain and trouble and depression and anxiety, you're greeted with death and meaninglessness. But if you believe in God, which I think there's a really good reason to, again, to believe in God, then there is something more than that, that you do have a life that is purpose. There is hope. There is a relationship that can actually not only make life more bearable, make life more joyful, make life more fun, but also gives you meaning and an internal hope that will not go away, that cannot be taken away from you. If you believe that and live your life according to that, it will flow from the belief itself. That's all you have to do. All you have to do is just give up the weight of trying to live under this delusion that there is a purpose and just accept God and surrender to Him. I think that is the application. I think that is the main point of this passage. And it's described in a beautiful analogy that fits with um, modern day. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and let us know how we're doing. Please let your friends know. And I hope you enjoyed. Thanks for listening.